You know, some things in life are more important to remember. For instance, wedding anniversary. The Lord led me to marry Rebecca 45 years ago. And uh, thank you. We made it. <laughs> and uh, I have never forgotten our anniversary, except one time. <laughs> it happened that our anniversary fell on a Saturday during the church weekend retreat. And uh, when skit night came along on Saturday night, surprise, uh, surprise to me, surprisingly to me, Rebecca and our two children got up and went up front and began to read a poem. It rhymed. It was all about how busy I had been that week. And uh, it was funny. It kind of built up and it crescendoed at the end when Rebecca said, and Danny has forgotten our anniversary today in front of 125 people. <laughs> the church roared with laughter. A few years later, on our 24th anniversary, again, it fell on Saturday at the church retreat. So I got up front, had a chair, had Rebecca come up front and sit in the chair, and I apologized for having forgotten our anniversary those years before. The church roared with laughter again because they all remembered it. And then I had some real nice things to say about how she impressed me and it led to me asking her to, asking her to marry me and how, what a good wife she'd been. And then I had JP bring up a huge bouquet of red roses and uh, I told Rebecca, I said, I thought it would be nice to have two dozen red roses since we've been married 24 years. But you better count and be sure. So she counted, she said, there are only 23. I said, one's missing? She said, yes. I said, oh, that was the, for the year that you embarrassed me in front of 125 people. <laughs> so so uh, some things are important to remember. Uh, our scripture, uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Philippians 3 and the last two verses and Philippians 4, the first seven verses. But first I'll, and you can follow on screen, but first I will uh, like to have a short prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for these people here in our hearing today. I love each one, Lord, and I just ask your help in preaching from your word. Carry me in my weakness. Holy Spirit, speak to each of us through your word. Empower us to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. When Apostle Paul uh, wrote to the church at Philippi, he wanted them to remember something important. So he used something very, very familiar to the people at Philippi, Roman citizenship. Philippi was a Roman colony in Macedonia, which is the northeastern part of uh, Greece. And a lot of the Roman, a lot of the citizens, uh, a lot of the people there were Roman citizens. And it was a, a status symbol, something people took pride in. And Philippi was governed like Rome. And the people lived like Romans, even though they were in this foreign land. 
From that backdrop, Paul declares an important truth for all believers to remember. If you are in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven, and that impacts how you live in this world. Verses 20 and 21 in chapter 3 remind us that as citizens of heaven, we are waiting Jesus' return, when he will transform our lowly earthly bodies into, or our earthly body into a heavenly body like his, a glorious heavenly body. For all who have repented and placed their trust in him, sin and sickness will be no more. Uh, death itself will die. So with such a wonderful, wonderful future, how are we to live here now as citizens of heaven? In chapter 4, verse 1, we see that Paul uses that important Bible word, you've heard JP say it, therefore. We always say, what is the therefore? Therefore. In this case, think of it like this. Verse 1 is saying, since you are citizens of heaven, you need to stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm in the original Greek was a military term. And it describes holding your ground or being on the defense. In football, it is often said, defense wins championships. That makes me think of the 1970s era Pittsburgh Steelers, the steel curtain defense. I was in my prime watching football at that time, so we all bear with me. <laughs> but you've probably heard of these teams, Terry Bradshaw and such. But it was spearheaded by a strong defensive line, line Dwight White, Ernie Holmes, Mean Joe Green, and L.C. Greenwood, arguably the greatest defensive line ever in NFL history. I see Paul nodding his hand as a Pennsylvania guy. <laughs> um, with that defensive line up front and other Hall of Fame and Pro Bowl players, they won four Super Bowls in six years. They were dominating, and mostly because of their defense. In Super Bowl nine, they held the Minnesota Vikings to 17 yards rushing. 17 yards, y'all and 119 total yards for, as you guessed, a low score, 16 to six victory. In Super Bowl 10, they sacked Hall of Fame quarterback Roger Staubach seven times and intercepted him three times for a 21 to 17 victory over Dallas. The Steelers' strength was that big, strong defensive line. The strength we need to stand firm comes from being in the Lord. It's not our own strength. Strategy is another important part of having a great defense, and God has given us a strategy for standing firm until Christ returns, which will be, by the way, the greatest championship victory and celebration of all time. Verses 2 through 6 lay out a four-part strategy that citizens of heaven are called to follow. In verse 2, agree in the Lord. 
In verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. In verse 5, be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. In verse 6, let your requests be made known to God. In verse 2, Paul entreats two leading women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Instead of agree, some Bible versions translate it to be of the same mind in the Lord. And one version reads, live in harmony in the Lord. Now Acts chapter 16 describes Paul planting the church at Philippi. It started with a handful of ladies who met to pray by a river. What a great way to start a church. From that beginning, others were added as the gospel was spread. Then trials and persecution came. There were false accusations from townspeople. An angry mob attacked. There were beatings and imprisonment. Through these trials, a close family relationship was developed between Paul and this church. Note how Paul loved the Philippian church. In verse 1, he writes, My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. A mutual love and trust between Paul and this church allowed him to pastor honestly and effectively. Now, we don't know what the disagreement was between Euodia and Syntyche. However, it was so important that Paul very publicly called out these two clearly godly ladies by name. He pled with them to agree in the Lord. How many times have you heard a pastor admonish a church member from the pulpit or write a letter to the whole congregation admonishing to uh, someone. I dare say never, never have you seen that happen. But this was so important that Paul took that route for the church at Philippi. Well, why was it so important? Paul is showing the church that the spread of the gospel is the main thing. The eternal life of people is at stake. After such a gospel-centered believing, the, the church at Philippi was falling into strife and malfunction. The spread of the good news about eternal life was being impeded. Our common enemy, Satan, was having his way with the people. In chapter 1, Paul wrote the Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, our manner of life at home, at work, at school, and in the church is a witness to the gospel. The witness by us is crucial to the spread of the gospel. In John 13, Jesus said, 
by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Unbelievers see that God is real when they see that his disciples love one another. Disciples who love one another find a way to agree in the Lord. I need to acknowledge one caveat about agreement. We should never compromise the gospel itself for the sake of agreement. Instead, we should prayerfully and fervently seek agreement on the truth of the gospel. Notice, too, that we are called to agree in the Lord. In seeking agreement, both parties must humble themselves, be sure to act in brotherly love, and submit to the Lord's will, not our own. The scriptures are full of teaching on handling conflict, and I found this book, The Peacemaker, by Ken Sandy to be a very good resource for studying what the Bible teaches Christians on handling conflict. I recommend it to you. Here at New City Fellowship, we value cultural and other diversity. It's a real blessing, and we are family. However, a cross-cultural church like ours, having more diversity will usually provide our common enemy, Satan, opportunity to stir up misunderstanding and disagreements. We defeat his efforts by learning to agree in the Lord. Typically, people make friends with others who have the same background, interests, and social group. However, there is something much better, stronger, and deeper for the church. Actually, it is someone. I like to say Christ in you and Christ in me is the real glue that bonds together believers. Our common relationship in Christ makes us the strongest kind of family. So, our familyship is in heaven as well as our citizenship. Let us seek to understand and appreciate one another's varied backgrounds and for the sake of the gospel, stand firm by learning to agree in the Lord. Looking, uh, our strategy two is rejoice in the Lord always. Looking at verse four, notice that Paul repeats this imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Repeating these words is like saying, hey, wake up, pay close attention. This is important. Over the years, Rebecca and I went to a lot of Christian concerts, particularly youth as youth leaders. And I remember one particular Carmen concert with a diverse audience of, I'd say, 10 to 15,000 people at Colonial Life Arena in Columbia. We were red and yellow, black and white. There was fervent singing, hand-raising, and clapping in praise and worship. We were rejoicing together in the Lord. I thought, this is what heaven will look like. 
I get to see that right here at New City Fellowship, and I really like it. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So what causes a believer to rejoice in the Lord? It starts with a change inside. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. For him the old has passed away, behold the new has come. This inner change is called conversion or being saved. And it occurs when a person repents and places his faith in Christ. The change is the work of the Holy Spirit and he comes and resides inside the believer. He gives us inner peace, contentment, and assurance of eternal life. Thankfulness is the believer's response for these and all the many other God-given blessings in life. Rejoicing in the Lord is born of the truths about the Lord and thankfulness to the Lord. The truths are eternal and there are always reasons for thankfulness to him. Therefore, we always have reason to rejoice in him, even in times of severe trouble and great loss. Now, this doesn't mean that we should bury our grief, our pain, and our fears. The scriptures are clear that we are to express them to God in prayer, and we in the church are to bear one another's burdens. So, we should be honest with God and others about our trials, yet we can rejoice in the Lord at the same time. I have witnessed some of you give thanks to God, even in the midst of your own times of difficulty and loss, and expressing to thanks to God in itself is a form of rejoicing. I've seen this recently in the lives of my youngest brother's son, Aaron, and his wife, Lizzie. JP spoke about them a few weeks ago. They lost their four-year-old son, Chipper, in a tragic drowning early this summer. Aaron and Lizzie have exhibited what it means to grieve great loss and at the same time to express thankfulness to God. And we can also say rejoicing in the Lord. Here's some excerpts from something Lizzie wrote. It has been 12 days since my baby went to be with Jesus. The 12 longest days of my entire life. I never imagined that I would only have four and a half short years with my little man. As I am grieving the loss of my son, I can't help but feel one other emotion aside from sadness, thankfulness. This is the last emotion I would expect to feel after such a tragedy. But as I reflect on my son's life and passing into heaven, I can't help but thank God for letting me be the mommy of the most precious little boy. Lizzie next shared beautiful past experiences with her son that bring her great joy and thankfulness to God. She closed with the following. 
I miss him so much that my heart literally aches. But even in the midst of all this pain, I know my God is good. He has a purpose and a plan in all this. I may not understand, but I have peace in knowing this truth. As Romans 8.28 says, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. My baby boy is in my heart and always will be. I have comfort in knowing I will see him again. In the grand scheme of eternity, it will be like the blink of an eye. Please, please pray for Aaron and Lizzie and their two girls for continued comfort and guidance from the Lord. And let us rejoice in the Lord always, for our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Strategy three, be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. The Greek word translated as reasonable in verse 5 of the ESV Bible is epiaikia. All the major Bible translations actually translate it different. I like how John Wesley put it, yieldedness, a readiness to submit to others, to give up our own will. He described the quality of epiaikia as what James 317 calls the wisdom from above, which is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I know of no better practical example of the epiaikia quality than Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail. Listen to how Dr. King addressed white clergymen who criticized his civil rights demonstration in Birmingham, Alabama. 16 of April, 1963. My dear fellow clergymen, while confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all the criticism that crossed my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day. And I would have no time for constructive work. But I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. And Dr. King goes on writing with truth, with patience, with gentleness and reasonableness. And he ends with this. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet with each of you, not as an integrationist, or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and Christian brother. Let us all heart hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding 
will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not too distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Your cause for the, yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr. Oh, that we could follow his words and his method. As citizens of heaven, let us be reasonable with others. The Lord is at hand. Strategy four, let your request be made known to God. When you are anxious about something, are you inclined to immediately take your need to prayer? Are you subject at first to try to fix things on your own? Do you lose patience when you don't have an immediate answer? I know I've made all those mistakes, but I've also learned it's always best to pray first and pray often and trust God to the end. When I was a college student, my friend Bobby called me one night with a, and asked me to pray for his younger teenage brother, Billy. Billy had started arguing with his mother about not wanting to go to church. And Bobby was real concerned about some guys he was hanging with in town. So I added Billy to my prayer journal and prayed for him pretty much every day for a number of weeks. Bobby called me two or three times over the next three or four months, and things were not looking hopeful for Billy. He was concerned, and I knew Billy, and I was concerned too. Then finally, after almost a year, Bobby called one, one night and said, Billy's been arrested. Uh, he's been charged with breaking and entering with these guys and stealing some things. And he has a court date coming up. Please pray for him. So I continued to pray for Billy, even in some discouragement. A few weeks later, Bobby called. He said, Danny, the judge has put Billy on probation and he has sentenced him to go to church every Sunday. And his dad, who hadn't been to church in decades, has to go with him. <laughs> and uh, it turned Billy's life around. We had our prayers answered, and we were, we were excited. When we make our requests known to God, we also have a promise. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We may not understand God's timing or even why he answers the way he does. However, we can rest in him because he is faithful to his word. We know that God hears our request and answers them in his perfect time and perfect way. We have peace of mind because the Prince of Peace has our back. In summary, let us stand firm in the Lord. Let us agree in the Lord. Let us rejoice in the Lord always. Let us be reasonable. The Lord is at hand. 
Let our requests be made known to God. It is important to remember we are in the world, but we are not of the world. In Jesus Christ our Lord, our citizenship is in heaven. Praise God. Thank you.